0: McCarthy. And
1: this is Women of Contradictions.
0: Hi, good evening. Hello. Good evening.
1: Hello, hello. How are
0: you? I feel like it's been a couple days since we talked. We both had like a busy weekend and you had a busy week and we haven't had a, our usual daily hour-long catch-ups. <laughs> it's
1: so true. <laughs> I know. We've been out of communication. I mean, I did communicate with you a little bit throughout the day because I was stuck in a lot of traffic, <laughs> and there was a lot of marital hatred for us. <laughs> you
0: know At least we have a term for it now that we can just say, "You know, it was normal marital hatred being in traffic."
1: <laughs> I I am not a car person. I don't enjoy being in the car for long periods of time. I have a couple hours in me. And whether it's nature or nurture, my children now are the same way. We all kind of get a little car sick. We're just, we are not the best versions of ourselves. So, like, I try to avoid car trips as much as possible. And I wanted to take the train to Portland. (laughs) But it was... It was a little bit more expensive, but I was like, but the train, it runs on time. We know it's going to take three hours. Like it never, it's rare that it ever takes longer. Whereas there is notoriously traffic between Seattle and Portland all the time. I don't know what it is with Washington drivers. They need to figure their shit out. But, um, so I was, there was so much, it it wasn't even passive aggressive. There was just aggressive comments being made from my side (laughs) of the car. (laughs) Over how we needed to take the train. And it was,
0: you know, it was it was a real test. It's a real test. But here we are. We made it. All right. Well, I'm going to jump right into it because yeah, I have fun things to talk about. The first is, I'm sure most people have heard of this by now, girl dinners. This fad trend on TikTok that I have been doing my entire life. <laughs> we both have. <laughs> we both have. But this trend popped up on TikTok called a girl dinner, which is basically... A smattering of things from your refrigerator that don't need any heat, I would say. People are calling them charcuterie boards, but I don't think it's a charcuterie board because my girl dinner doesn't sometimes involve a meat or a cheese. Sometimes it's just a bread and butter and an olive, but it's something that's in your fridge that's just kind of there that you assemble on a plate. It's like a little snack plate, and I eat that most nights when I when Andrew is like out and about in the world and is not home for dinner, I have like a snack plate of sorts.
1: But I'm curious if this article has gotten much or trend, whatever it is, has gotten any like blowback about, I don't know. Yes,
0: it has gotten some blowback with people saying it's eating disorder adjacent. And while I can't speak for everybody, Mm -hmm. I will say I feel very clean and good with my girl dinners because... I do it with pleasure and I eat with pleasure and there's no restriction in my girl dinner as much as the restriction is in the lack of cooking and lack of pot cleaning. Yeah. So I feel great about my girl dinners.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I feel like a lot of times when I have those kind of dinners, they're actually probably high in... Calories too, and I know you and I, you and I have a love of something that we actually have been curious to see how other people feel. Uh, we are big fans of tinned fish. And that often makes an appearance in my girl dinner, whether it's sardines or mackerel, like tuna sometimes, but like, I actually like the more like anchovies. I like all that. We both like all that stuff and we thought it was normal. And we know apparently changed for it. (laughs) Like we've been yucked. We've been yucked for it.
0: Oh my God. Yes. I was at work the other day and mentioned to a coworker that I was going to go home and have a can? No, a tin, a tin of sardines, a can of sardines. I would also eat the size of a can of sardines. Uh, I was going to have a tin of sardines for lunch. And her remark <laughs> back was, you're the most exotic person I know. Yeah, totally. I loved it. I yeah. will take that compliment for my sardine consumption. That is so funny. So please let us know your thoughts on uh, tin
1: tinned, tinned fish and girl dinners.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay. My next thing is, is I'm going to go on my high horse just for a second here. We've talked about this before, but the idea that I grew up in Hollywood and I was still living in Hollywood, working in Hollywood around the time that Priuses came online. This was before Tesla's the OG Prius Mm -hmm. and everybody I knew in Hollywood that had money ditched their car and went and bought a Prius. Not because they loved the idea of a Prius, but because they didn't want to be seen not driving Mm -hmm. a Prius. Not because of its, like, Mm -hmm. status. You know, it wasn't expensive like a Tesla, but it had the eco-friendly... It was a virtue-signaling thing.
1: Yeah. Larry David drove a Tesla. Or, I'm sorry, Larry David drove a Prius. Do you remember that? In,
0: In Curb Your Enthusiasm, there was a whole thing about it. You know that I once let Larry David in front of me in traffic. No. Yeah. In LA. Oh my God. That's amazing. Uh, I was pulling out of a Starbucks parking lot in Santa Monica. Yes. I do wish I was in a cooler location than a Starbucks parking lot, but there I was and somebody tried to, somebody need to get ahead of me. And I looked and, you know, ushered them in and I realized it was Larry David and his Prius and it was just phenomenal. And he waved at me. So I, have no complaints about his curmudgeoness because he waved after I let him into traffic. Oh, that is a good one. The point of the Prius story is it bothered me because it's not the eco-friendly thing to just ditch your car that is still fully functioning and working and buying the eco-friendly choice. People think like, oh, I'm going to do less gas emissions, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And time and time again now, experts have said, no, the most eco-friendly thing you can do is buy less and use what you have until it's no longer usable. And then... Your next purchase is the most ecologically friendly choice. Like that is what we should all be doing. But instead we're caught up in this consumerism and we're caught up in this like, oh, how dare I not have the most eco-friendly thing. And instead we're getting rid of all all our possessions and replacing it with all this green friendly stuff and it's causing Mm -hmm. issue. And apparently Mm -hmm. this is happening in the home business as well. Mm -hmm. On the front page of house and home and the FT weekend, they just had a piece that I loved about, titled The Carbon Conundrum. And it was about the idea of the urge to rebuild versus uh, renovate with the existing structure you have. And many people want to rebuild. They want to tear down their house and build the most eco-friendly house. And now people are coming coming online. I don't know why that's my my phrase du jour tonight, but people are starting to speak up and say, that's actually not eco-friendly. What you can do is renovate your existing structure is the best thing to do. And now architectural mm-hmm. firms are specializing in this, where they are trying to convince people not to just bulldoze and rebuild, but to renovate what they have. Because much like my annoyance at just buying a Prius to buy a Prius, building an eco-friendly house just to build an eco-friendly house is not carbon friendly because people yeah. don't take into consideration all those new materials versus working with the existing. And I'm sorry, I just like really enjoyed being on my high horse this morning with my cup of <laughs> this, being like I'm telling you people, use <laughs> what you have and buy less.
1: <laughs> I love a high horse moment. Or just move into an Build, move into an already eco-friendly house.
0: Totally. Buy the if house that already can...
1: exists if that's what you're wanting.
0: If you have the money to completely tear down and build again, you also have the money just to move into the eco-friendly house. Totally. End of story. So my last thing is doomsday which I thought you would either appreciate or hate me to bring up. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Tell me what it is. So we all know Oppenheimer. And it is in the zeitgeist right now. And nuclear war, because of that, is being talked about and thought about a lot more. And uh, apparently, psychologists and therapists across the country are noticing an uptick in people coming in saying they're having these nuclear war doomsday nightmares, and they're keeping them up at night. Yeah. And I have actually randomly experienced one of these, not because of the Oppenheimer film, but because of that book that I loved, and I still recommend to everybody, My Life in the CIA, Amaryllis Fox. I forget the exact title. Oh, but yeah. that's the, the one you gave me. It's still yeah. on my bookshelf. I'm, I remember you giving it to me and saying, I want this back. Like, that's how much you love the book. And I was like, <laughs> was... okay, must treat this book well. Um, anyway, it's a, a woman who details her life in the CIA. And she went into great detail about what would happen and how she was helping to thwart nuclear attacks on New York City where I live and she was mm. explaining if, it, if the bomb hit here and she was saying intersections of streets like where the radio radioactive like zone would be and i remember while reading that book i had those doomsday nightmares where in my nightmare it was full mushroom cloud and just like blinding light. And she also explained like what happened. It, I mean, I loved the book. I thought it was like, so I also think it's actually important for us to know the mm-hmm. details of such a thing and know that as humans, we have that ugly power of completely mm-hmm. destroying each other, which I apparently is what Oppenheimer is about. And Christopher Nolan agreed with film critics and other people who have called it, it's a horror film. He's like, mm-hmm. I can't disagree with it, the fact that it's a horror film. But I just think it's interesting that this doomsday mentality is in the zeitgeist from that and from climate change. I'm. This all came to fruition because I read this article in The Atlantic that talks about this. And the man who had one of these doomsday nightmares and then went out on an investigation of like, is it just me or is it others? Um, he interviewed various people that have connections to it, and one in particular, I love this quote, I really think that one of the most difficult things that's happening right now, culturally, is this relentless marketization of doom. The movies, the apocalyptic apocalyptic films. They're expressing a great concern that we all have consciously or unconsciously that what we're doing isn't sustainable and we're really in trouble on this planet right now. And those are real concerns. It's just that they don't have a lot of room for a different ending. And the marketization of doom really stuck out to me because it also kind of frustrated me that we're even marketing doom. (laughs) While at the same time, I know that's important for us to recognize the climate change, the nuclear threats, and the other big issues that face us, marketing them, the marketization of it is also ugly to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat, this isn't new to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're like, thank God everyone's catching up with my brain. (laughs) Welcome to my life
1: people. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, I mean, I like I've talked a little bit about it, but I've always existed in this catastrophist space. So I feel like actually uh, at the start of the Russian-Ukraine war, I had a, a full like mental breakdown thinking about nuclear warfare and like Russia dropping the bomb and all that kind of stuff. I actually feel like I've processed it. I have I've I've gone through it. <laughs> I'm like McDonald's. Great. I had a similar situation with climate change, which I mean, it's still it's still stressing me out. But I'm also like, I'm doing my part. I'm doing what I can. My catastrophism is now like showing up in like the smaller ways in which I could die in really random horrific circumstances on a daily basis. <laughs> oh my god! But I've, done, I've done the big ones. <laughs> oh, I'm 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 very torn about seeing the movie for this reason though, because I'm like. I, you know, it's getting rave reviews and all this kind of stuff. And I know a little bit about the making of the nuclear bomb and all that kind of stuff, but I could learn some more. But I'm really, I've heard people walk away and are deeply, deeply
0: affected by this film. And I just don't know if that's
1: something I want right now.
0: Okay, well, on that note, this is technically three and a half things, but I was going to end with this quote that I saw the other day that I really loved, and it's by Henry Miller, and it's called The Finest Medicine, and it is, to be silent the whole day long, see no newspaper, hear no radio, listen to no gossip, be thoroughly and completely lazy, thoroughly and completely indifferent to the fate of the world is the finest medicine a man can give himself. And I kind of agree that might be the antidote to the, like, doomsday – terrors is allow yourself a day of no news, no gossip, no contact, mm-hmm. no nothing just existing in the world, preferably like I think in nature is what I would yeah. say. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's good advice. Will I take it?
0: I will <laughs> tell. <laughs> She's like, yeah. Okay. Henry Miller, you go do that. <laughs> I am going to
1: pivot to some really fun light things okay. away from from you know nuclear warfare and on to someone that I know you love and I was really excited when I listened to this and this is um, Michael Poland who for those who don't know, I'm going to read from his website what he calls himself. Michael Pollan writes about the places where nature and culture intersect on our plates, in our farms and gardens, and in the built environment. And he was on one of my favorite radio programs slash podcasts of all time called Desert Island Discs. And
0: Mm.
1: it was, it's a couple months old now, but... For those who don't know, Desert Island Discs is a long-running BBC radio program. And by long-running, I mean, I think it's been on the air for almost 80 years. And they have interviewed everybody. And I mean everybody, from astrophysicists to Margaret Thatcher to David Beckham to Yo-Yo Ma. I mean, it just like runs the gambit. And there's names that you recognize and names that you don't. But I really enjoyed the Michael Pollan one. He talks so well about, he's really good at telling stories. And the beautiful thing about this show is that you incorporate music into it. And music is so personal for people. A lot of people, and so I think you gain. a lot because you know
0: it's not personal for me. She's like it's personal for a lot of people, not the person I'm talking to right now.
1: But I think if you were talking about the songs, oh, so the premise is you—it's the music that you would bring onto a desert island with you. And so I think it's like music that has meant something to you in your life. So I think that you would you still connect with music on some level, maybe true, not as good. much and deeply as maybe I or others do, but you still connect with it. True, true. true. Um, and so he had a great music selection, which I always appreciate.
0: I need to add it to my repertoire of podcasts. I will do that this week. And that one I really will. I know I say sometimes <laughs> I'll do things and I won't, but that one I will because I adore Michael Pollan. Yeah,
1: start. This can be your your gateway drug into, oh, and he also talks, that was something he he talked about was his use of oh. experimental drugs.
0: Okay. The minute you said gateway drug, I was like, oh, she really set herself up well for that. <laughs> I didn't even do
1: it on purpose. I'm getting so good at this, (laughs) but he, yeah, he did. He doesn't really actually say what he does. He tried to do a study with Berkeley. I think it was Berkeley and didn't get into the study. So he was like, well, I want to write about this for my book. So I'm going to do this on the side. So he's still, he still was under the supervision of a doctor, but he was. De- it was definitely some type of hallucinogenic. I don't know if it was LSD or or some you know boiled down form
0: of LSD. I think he might have done them all. He has a Netflix special where he goes through mushrooms, LSD, uh, okay, and through other like psilocybin type mm. mind altering, and they actually um, show him going through a, a trip on. Yeah, on net, the Netflix doc, like he oh, does I it. Oh, I need to watch that. Oh, he does it with you know he does it with it's like a form. It's like a form of tobacco or something where it's like a very intense, short trip. And he does it in front of camera.
1: So would you, we've kind of talked about this. Would you, would you do any of those? Would you oh, do God. them on yeah. your
0: own or would you do them under like a
1: super, the, a medical supervision?
0: I look under the right circumstances. I do it under anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I am very interested. I feel like I would love to do ayahuasca, at some point in my life, I would probably make a trip out of that, I think, and do it properly with a shaman in in the structures that it's traditionally been done for for millennia. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I'm totally I'm totally down to do all of that. I'm into it. Yeah. I yeah. haven't done I, it yet. No. So I'm talking a big game without any other-
1: <laughs> <laughs> I go back and forth. I have done... I I have done some drugs in my life, but I can get a little paranoid. So I think I would have to do it. I think I would have to do it under doctor's supervision. That makes sense. And yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like my I feel like my drug experimental days might be beyond me.
0: They might be past. Uh, and another fun fact, and then we can move on off of drugs, but it relates to Oppenheimer. <laughs> So the atomic, the first testing of the atomic bomb, I believe, was in 1945, and the first testing of an LSD trip was in 1943, and um, Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, he discovered it accidentally in 1936 and then took a, an official trip in 1943, uh, believes that it wasn't an accident that those two things were discovered around the same time, that while one can destroy us, the other can save us, and typically the antidote is found at the same time as the poison. So, I I love it. Okay.
1: You listen to Desert Island Discs. I'm going to watch the Michael Poland documentary. And we're actually going to do it. (laughs) 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 All right. For my next thing, which I don't want to come across too mean, but also it's going to be really hard not to.
0: When you start off like that. I know. Let's just say earlier today, my boyfriend said, this is going to come across as mansplaining. And I was like, then don't say it. Even when you preface it like that, it's still, you should not say it. Oh, now you're (laughs) making me, should I not say it? No, I'm going to say it. No, 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 no. I don't
1: feel bad about this one. So Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Felipe have a son whose name is Deacon Felipe, although he goes now by Deacon and he is, I think <laughs> A Nepo baby Extraordinaire I need you to just watch a little bit of the clip I just sent
0: you Okay. I swear it happens every time So please don't kill my I said hi Look at the lies Enough. <laughs> <laughs> the video quality
1: is good. Like it's clear, it's clear Mama Reese has invested in this pop career, but oh my God, it's so bad. It's so bad. And I was, I was just laughing. There's at one point in the video, he has like a headscarf on in, yeah. in with like his hoodie and he's in, I don't know, I think like Tokyo or something like that. And it's just... It's just not good. And the only reason that there's like a YouTube video and part part of me is like, well, maybe it's not for me. He's like 17, 18 years old. You know, maybe he's trying to appeal to the teeny bopper group. But then I was thinking about the Justin Beavers of the world and I'm like, no, but their music is actually good. Like I can, even if I don't always like the music, I, I can recognize it's good. This is not good. (laughs) It is so not good. And it reminded me of like some other Nepo babies who are doing things. And it's just, I think as a parent, and I don't know what happens to celebrity parents. I mean, I know this happens to all parents where you like, you think your child walks on like water and is the best thing ever. But like, I don't know if you've ever seen the Brooklyn Beckham food videos where he's like a chef.
0: I've heard about them, have not seen them.
1: Oh God. It's it's painful. Like he's like making a grilled cheese. Like he thinks like he's doing something real special with like buttering the cream or buttering the grilled cheese and like putting it in. You're like, no, like, but the production value is good. Like he's clearly got a crew producing these videos and he's trying to be like a, you know, YouTube chef star, but Oh my God, it's so bad. And I don't, I'm, I just am really confused because I have two children and I love them so much, but I also already, and am like, I don't think that's going to be your thing, honey. Like I haven't vocalized that to them yet, but like, you know, you kind of are like, maybe gymnastics isn't for you. Let's, let's go in another direction. Where are your strengths? And I don't, I don't think that's happening in this world of Nepo babies. And it's, I find it fascinating.
0: Yeah. I think this, this shows that it proves the theory. I forget where I first read it, but the theory that if you have enough money to do nothing, you become an artist. Oh yeah, artist. we talked about this. Oh. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I do believe that like, if, if given no time constraints, no, no qualms about money, everybody finds art or expression in their own way and whether they're good mm-hmm. at it or not, whatever, but yeah. everybody is drawn to expressing themselves if they have the money to not work. And I think you see a lot of Nepo babies becoming artists in some capacity because they do have the money to not work. And so they try to express themselves in some way. And even if it's good or not good, I will be the one who's like, you know, I applaud him for putting it out there because oh, it took you, me a long time. A to a better,
1: you are a better person than me, Veronica. I'm like,
0: All right. For my last
1: one, uh, I wanted to talk about the Women's World Cup, which is happening. And I hope everyone is watching. But also, I wanted to use it as an opportunity. And this might be a bigger conversation later, but to talk about women's sports. And I love the world cup i love the olympics i think we've kind of talked about this i love the women's world cup the women's team tends to get in the united states tends to get higher viewing numbers than the men than the men's team because they're actually good like our men's <laughs> world cup team but i was looking into the st- statistics of women's sports and it's crazy how all that being said women's professional sports, professional soccer, professional golf, tennis is different. Tennis is one of the few that's different, but, um, the WNBA, they still have incredibly low numbers. And I have to call myself out on this because I, I don't watch the way I don't watch a lot of professional women's sports, the way I watch men's sports. And I'm pretty into sports. Like I, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm like, some people, but I'm fairly into sports. And I think the numbers were interesting when I pulled them up. And it was 58% of men in a global survey say they watch sports, 33% of women say they watch sports. And then of those of the same population, it was watched any professional women's sports, either broadcast or in person. And of that, it goes down to 31% male and 22% female. And so there is still like a huge amount for women's sports to overcome. Mm -hmm. And I know that I definitely need to be better about that. We've started going to some of the WNBA games here in Seattle and the women's soccer league recently moved up here. They were um, a little bit further away. So plan to go to those games, but like definitely need to do more on my part to support women's sports the way I watch and participate in men's sports outside of the Olympics and World Cup soccer.
0: Well, that kind of goes to my point on this, that I wonder if it's also a media and marketing problem. Like, yes, we could be better at just watching the sports, but as someone, I'm not that into sports. Yeah, And the only way I get into sports is when I read a emotional piece about one of the players. And very Mm -hmm. rarely do you have pieces. the the only piece about a WNBA player was Brittany, what was her last name when she got um, Griner, who was in um, detained in Russia, like that was the biggest news story of the WNBA females. And I just think that if you want to capture an audience, you have to give them the background to these athletes, you can't just expect them to watch. And if you look at all of the Uh, sports broadcasting. It's just, it's just highlights the men time and time again. So of course I'm going to watch the men's sports because I have some emotional connection to the person I've read, like all the articles about.
1: And you know what I think is a huge issue in that as well. And I agree, but I do think it's more women who want that personal connection to Mm -hmm. athletes than men do. And I think you, you look at men and women in sports and It's people who have big personalities, big egos. And that is something that is applauded in men. And that is not something that is applauded in women. So you think of all the female athletes out there who would maybe have bigger egos and personalities, but have brought them down to be more likable, to be more palatable. But that's kind of what you need in sports. Because you think Mm -hmm. of who, who do we know? It's like the Megan Rapinos, the people who are out there being the badass, you know, say, giving you the soundbite and all that kind of stuff. But it's – and the Serena Williams, you know, is such a personality. And you just don't see enough of those. And so I I hope – I would love to see women lean into that more, lean into those bigger personalities, lean into their egos, because that's, that's what's fun about it.
0: Yeah. We should definitely do a bigger episode on this because I also – want to look into this, but it has been said amongst MMA commentators, they comment that women fight with a ferocity that men don't fight with in the MMA. Mm. And so you would think that that would draw up numbers, but instead they're kind of like negatively talking about that women don't have a correct decorum when they fight, whereas men have this like, just a better decorum, like lack of this ferocity term. And Andrew and I are actually kind of debating this uh, recently, if that ferocity comes from Years of being in fear of masculine violence, so it's like in our DNA to fight Mm -hmm. back ferociously. Or does it come from years of protecting the young and this idea of like, oh, if somebody's attacking me, I have the capability to be for much more ferocious than a man does against another man. But regardless, it was said negatively towards women when it's something that you think the MMA would MMA would want, and when. I forget. I think it was Ronda Rousey who said, don't be a do nothing bitch, which was like a quote heard around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you think that they would want that. But then at the same time, when it's shown, they look at it negatively, which is like the complexity of a woman Yeah. Cause it's like, you don't,
1: it's, yeah. Cause it's like, you don't want a woman to be that much of a badass, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, Oh, there was someone just got in trouble. I think it was an Australian commentator because Oh gosh, I'm not going to, I think it was someone competing on the English team and she'd recently become a mother and they commented on how, and they meant it. The intentions were good. He basically said like, oh, she's still really competitive given she's just become a mother. And it was like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, why would that make her less competitive? And I think it's just such, and I, one, I think like, that's why you probably need more female commentators in these fields. Mm-hmm, yeah. And then I think it's just like at the end of the day, you know, here I am on my patriarchy thing again, but it's like men don't want to see women in that light, in that for, in that ferociousness, in that, you know, rage in some ways, which is what we delight in our male athletes. And we don't let that exist in our female athletes.
0: Yeah, the complexity of, like, female rage being shown, I think at the end of the day, because it fucking scares them as it should.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's the combination of, like, the rage and then, like, the witchiness of it. Like, you know, they're just terrified of us. And I want to say, as you fucking should be.
0: back. I am bringing a topic to the table today that I have I don't have an answer on, but I have been mulling it in my head for a while and I don't even know if there is an answer, but the question is
1: <laughs>
0: do you pursue a big life or a little life? And I think you could also say a simple life instead of a little mm-hmm. life. But I I feel like I'm at a bit of a crossroads in my life right now, in the sense that I live in a big city that will support a young child, but would not support multiple children into, let's say five, like, you know, pre-KK. And I say that due to just financial constraints. Like, I know that I won't have the financial means to put two kids through school in New York City. So the idea is at what point Do I start to look outside of New York City? And this has spurred on a lot of anxiety in me because I have pursued New York City in the idea of a big life. It would give me a big life. I hadn't even seen Mad Men at the time. So I don't know where I was getting this (laughs) idea that like the bigness happened in New York, if it was just like the size of the buildings. But I just, since I was a child, I always dreamt of having plain outfits. Like I always dreamt of movement. Mm. I dreamt of travel. I dreamt of like experiences. I honestly like never dreamt of having a family, being a mother, having a garden. Like it was more like executive boardroom attire, what to wear. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say that was my definition of like a big life was this idea of like a independent career woman in a big city that was very cultured, very well-traveled, And just that, that is what I pursued and I'm still pursuing it. I won't say that I'm there yet, but I do live in a big city, had supported myself in a big city um, and continue to do so. But now I am with a partner who I love and we want to have a family and we don't have the financial means to do it in the way that we want in New York. Like we could survive in New York, but we wouldn't thrive in New York with our family. And so he, uses has been using this phrase like well I'm very happy with a simple life and I am at first I'm like uh-huh, yeah totally totally simple 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 like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah on board on board so love simple and then, and then the interior of me like kind of flares up a bit with this idea of a simple life and it really has made me start to ponder what type of life Again, I don't think there's a wrong or right answer, but to give pause of like what type of life should one pursue and what really is the definition of a simple life versus a big life. I also would have to, I I would be lying if I didn't admit that I am nervous about pursuing this simple life. And by simple life, we mean like outside of the city with land growing our own vegetables, like having space for animals, having space for kids and work would not come first. Whereas right now in my life, work comes first, travel comes first, like reaching for more comes first and not even in a consumeristic mindset, but more of a experiential mindset. Like what more can I experience in, in bigness but then at the same time, when I think back to like the past couple of years during COVID where I was forced to live a simpler, smaller life, I remember some of the best days from those small moments and not those big moments. I specifically, I remember one day during, I think it was like year two of COVID when we were doing small travel, but not plane travel where you could like take a trip um, in a car. And I, I went squid fishing and I like caught my own squid, cooked my own squid made calamari like all in one day. And I was like, this is the definition of life. Like, I don't know anything sweeter (laughs) than like catching your own food and, and making calamari with it. And at the same time, I'm like, "Can, can I do that day in and day out and be satisfied? Or will there be something in me that is still unsatisfied with that? And at the end of the day, I don't think I will know until I try it. But it also reminds me, this, this question reminds me a lot of a book I read at the beginning of this year and just devoured. It's, I, don't, I don't want to say it's controversial, but it has its critics. It's called A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. And you might also know it by the cover of the book. It's kind of a man's face in pain. And it follows the life of four or five friends, four friends, yeah, four friends in New York City and their, like, extraneous friend group um, over the course of their lives. And some people call it, like, grief porn because the main character has a very difficult childhood and you learn about his childhood throughout his life. But hmm. I find it interesting because these characters end up having very big lives. They end up gaining a celebrity status to them, almost all of them. One becomes a very famous painter, one becomes a very famous actor, one becomes a very famous architect, and then the main character becomes a famous lawyer. And so they all gain bigness in their lives, but what the book focuses on more than anything is their relationships with each other. And at the end of the day, the relationships with each other are the most important aspects of their lives as opposed to what they have done with their life. And the fact that the book's called A Little Life makes me... Realize that at the end of the day, the quality of your life, the most important thing about your life are your relationships. And to nurture those and to work on those is a much more interior, smaller life than this big life of whatever I might have in my mind that bigness would equate to happiness, when happiness <laughs> might be, you know, the smallest moments of life and not the biggest moments of life.
1: Mm.
0: that's my opening monologue of a <laughs> question and wondering what to do next.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like an existential crisis. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, you know, which I have very, experienced. <laughs> it's very refreshing to hear you say that because, you know, you're not, you're not um, making it small. You're like, this is a big thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs>
1: No, the the whole time you were talking I was like I think this is an existential crisis. I, I think when you I think when you when you have these moments in your life and I think it's often when you're at a crossroads like mine came about in my late 20s. And um I I think for a lot of people it's when you're at a crossroads in your life and it is where like the path could diverge into one or two ways and mm-hmm. you're kind of like you can see both. You can see what's like up the road on both sides. And I think it's, you're like, duh, both look good, but both have perks and whatever. And as you were saying all this, this is is just going to sound like a therapy session. So
0: apologies to our (laughs) listeners because I feel like that's the road we're heading down. Oh my gosh, I'm here for this though. Although we do want to do an episode on over-therapization, but this yeah. is a good therapization. so go on. But
1: I, as you, were, as you were talking, there is part of me that's just like, well, why can't you have a little bit of both? Like, why does it have to be one or the other? Is there a world that both exist in different ways? Like, and I think this is, it's, as you were talking, I recognize a lot of the own thoughts that I have had, and felt the need to have an answer on and make a choice. And it's like maybe we don't need to make a choice. Maybe it, it's not as concrete as that. It it's just the ways in which we pursue different things mm-hmm. simultaneously. We there are times where we're pursuing little life smaller things experiences communal activities things like that and then there are times when we're pursuing bigger things whether it's trips or I don't know celebrity not celebrity but you know like professional achievements and pursuits and do they have to be do they have to be mutually exclusive I guess is my question
0: yeah. No, they, they definitely do not. I've started to really realize about my personality that I live in the past a lot, and it's really hard for me to envision my future. And I think at this existential crisis or at this uh, divergence of roads, is re- it's always been really hard for me to pick a road. Like, I don't like when things diverge. I like to plod along without having to make choices. And I do wonder... <laughs> To some degree, that's why I'm the age that I am not married without kids because I never wanted to make that choice. And there's also, by not making a choice, you are making a choice. Mm. Uh, And I think that happens to a lot of women, or I should just say people. I use women because I was just talking about having children where if you sit in the ambulatory grayness, you're going to end up without the thing, most likely, whether that's kids or the job or the move, as opposed to actively working and pursuing and moving towards that direction. And I can sit in gray too well, or I can sit in that, (laughs) that, that, that lack of movement quite easily and make excuses and pursue other things that don't further maybe what I might want or don't further my life in a, um, stronger, I wouldn't say stronger direction, but like in a specific direction. Uh, and that's something that I, I want to work on is being able to work towards a future as opposed to really looking back at my past so much, which believe me, therapy, Gosh. that's what you do with therapy. <laughs>
1: You. What is so funny is I am the exact opposite. I am only ever looking forward and I'm constantly in the like forward mindset of what are we doing next? What's happening next? Whatever. And I don't like looking back. Like I am like, that happened. It's done. Let's move on. We're, you know, carry on everybody. <laughs> like get over it. And I don't know that... That's always the best place to be in either. I think it... There are things that are fun. I think like I, I'm really happy entertaining all sorts of ideas about what the future might hold. Like, I mean, I was just sharing with you. I was like, oh, look at this house I found on this real estate site. Maybe when my children are like 16 or 17, this would be the perfect house for us to live at in London. And we can do this. Like, It's like knowing full well the odds, I mean, this house will not be available. And the odds of this happening are you know, very low. But like, I find a lot of joy in those like dreaming of the future. But I think it also means that I am often unsatisfied in the present because I am constantly in this state of what's next, what's next, what's next. And I think that's something I'm really trying to work on is I need to think less about the next three, five, 10 years and more about maybe like the next week. Like I need to be a little bit more of the moment and maybe you need to be, maybe that's the thing. We, we both need to be of them a little bit more of the moment, but you're coming forward and I'm coming back. But, um, I always, I, I often wonder because I feel like I am someone who is not ever 100% satisfied with anything Mm -hmm. in my life, like anything really. And I am always so curious, like are there people out there who exist who are just satisfied with what they have, who are just content being and living? And if you exist, can you reach out to me and tell me (laughs) what it's like in that land? (laughs) Because that That is is just not (laughs) me.
0: Oh, I mean, we I we were talking about this on text and on Marco I think this past week about dissatisfaction in life and not extreme dissatisfaction, but just mm. that nine I, I it's a nine or an artistic like uh, I'm not I'm not doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. At least I should speak from myself. Like I feel that dissatisfaction a lot when I'm not pursuing some type of artistic expression, and typically that dissatisfaction is turns turns negative energy inward like i become inwardly destructive and there's this phrase saying your daemon can turn into your demon the idea that the daemon the art that you should be producing the thing that you should be doing the way in which you should be contributing to the world if you're not doing that thing it will fester inside of you until the the interior just explodes and i definitely experience that when I'm not doing my art in any way, shape, or form. And and I have to remind myself because I think that we live in a world where we think, oh, they're only doing art if you're selling at a certain gallery or if, you're, if your writing is shown on a certain site or, you know, X, Y, Z, but it's just actually doing the art.
1: I think what's interesting, too, as we get older and we pursue – <sighs> when you want a family when you have a family it's not just it's not just you and another adult your partner it's now you have kids in the mix and so then you start thinking well what's best for them what is the life what's the best possible life i could give these tiny humans and that's something that i really grapple with because sometimes what I want is the big life, but what I think that ch- small children perhaps do better where they do better is in the small life. And so mm-hmm. there's that tension that exists for me constantly and wondering, I am more of a city person. I, Even though I live in Seattle and it is technically a city, it's not a city, it's not a metropolis, right? And so you have some perks of living in a city, but you also have aspects that can feel very suburbia. And I struggle with that. And I would much rather be in a metropolis. But then I also see the life that my children are having in this place where in some ways they they kind of have a little bit of both. They experience aspects of a bigger city, but then they have a yard and they have neighborhood friends and things like that, that they might not get if we lived in a big metropolis. And it's that constant push and pull of like, what do I want versus what's good for them? And I think that's motherhood in general, mm-hmm. because you're constantly at odds of your own pursuits versus your children. <laughs> and I don't Why know. This again? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's simply life longing for itself. Like there's no other way to put it. It's just there's something no. innate in you that's like, oh God, what am I doing? Yeah.
1: No. I and obviously, like I, I love my children. It goes without saying. And I'm, there are there are days when the act of parenting and motherhood is deeply satisfying, and there are days when it is excruciating. And so I think. Yeah, some, and, and, and I think the answer is that all the things can be beautiful and all the things can be rewarding. And I think it's just simply figuring out, like, for yourself and for your family. Because if you are denying yourself certain things, that's going to feed into your family life. If you are deeply unhappy and unsatisfied, you could be out in the country with cows and, you know, Whatever people have in the country, <laughs> and, and be and be deeply unhappy, and that's gonna that's gonna that's gonna filter out into every other aspect of your life. I don't
0: know if it's like Freud or somebody, but that quote came up for me when you were talking—the idea that like um, an unhappy child is like due to the unlived life of a parent or something like that, like childhood uh, trauma yes. comes to the unlived life of a parent. And I remind myself that a lot. I like the amount of like parenting mm-hmm. philosophy that I have consumed before being a parent is terrifying, by the way. Like I, every time there's like a parenting article, I find like vaguely interesting. I'm like reading, taking notes, thinking about it. Like it's too much. I need to stop and just do the damn thing already. But clearly there's fear because I'm like in, as the Enneagram would say, I'm in my six, which is where <laughs> um, nines go in unhealth. God, this is like really going to become a, a, a side side. <laughs> podcast but my personality type when I'm not healthy goes to extreme investigation and over and like lives in that because we're afraid to make action mm. or do action see
1: I am I'm action 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 think about the consequences after the fact I'm like let's keep going I I would be totally fine moving every three years because I love change I just I want to mix it up. I want to do things differently. And so I'm like, oh, we'll th- we'll figure it out once we get there. Let's just get to the place we want to get to. And this is why choosing a partner is important because my husband is like, no, that's not what we're going to do
0: it can't work like that we need to find a balance of constant movement well in like three or four years time i'm gonna have some chickens i'm gonna have you over and we're gonna crack some eggs and i'm gonna be like look at this simple life okay and also how are we gonna conquer the world simultaneously while i raise my my chickens
1: (laughs) or you're gonna be like how do i get out of here what have i gotten myself into i actually hate chickens
0: Why did I think this was a good idea? (laughs) Can you imagine? It's like the most beautiful like breakfast and yolk. Like I have this like Martha Stewart, like picturesque image in my mind of like, and you're just like, oh my God, you did it. You did everything. I'm like, get me out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you, Veronica. There is a huge part of me that thinks that might happen. (laughs) That's the start of that's the start of what's <laughs> that movie with the two girls that go across country and then drive off the cliff? Oh, Felma oh, Louise. Remember <laughs> yeah, our Louise story? I'm like, I need to get out of here now. Yeah, what have, <laughs> what have I done? In get in the car now. <laughs> Find us on Instagram at Women of Contradictions. Sign up for our newsletter at Women of Or drop us a note at Hello at Women of Till
1: next time, ciao.